morning, everybody. Hello, happy hump day. Welcome to the news agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by the Mirror editor, Alison Phillips. Good morning, Alison. Good morning, Susie. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. A bit coffee, but um, we'll try and get through it all. Now, this is the People's Paper Review. So get into the comments, ask us your questions. And we'll do our best to answer them for you. Those of you listening later on the podcast are just going to have to remember to vote tomorrow for how often your bins get emptied. It's quite an important vote. So what have we got for you today? Well, the mirror has splashed on news that broke overnight about someone throwing shotgun cartridges uh, at Buckingham Palace. Always a risky move. Um, there was a controlled explosion. Jacob Rees-Mogg got moved into a porter cabin and the suspect is now being questioned by police who are just at the moment rather on alert for the unwell people who tend to start focusing on the royal family when there's a big event. Speaking of the Tory party, it can't seem to decide whether or not it's stuffed itself in tomorrow's local elections. Now, these are the first ones where you will need to show photo ID to vote at a polling station. And it was voted through with lots of claims that it would only really affect Labour voters anyway. Tories all have passports or something like that. But in the past few days, uh, with fears growing about the size of the likely Tory defeat or the Labour win, there have been people pointing out that this move might, in fact, be their own base, the Tories' own base they're preventing from voting, older people in general. So, Alison, there's a story here about a lady who's 93 and she's voted every time she's had a chance to, but she's been ill. So she hasn't been able to get the required photos sorted out. Now, she's um, a Labour supporter, but there'll be plenty of people in a similar situation who are older, who've been ill, who've been busy, who will have the same problem, won't they? Yeah, I think this is going to be a massive problem. And people aren't really going to realise until tomorrow when I think lots and lots of people are going to go to the polling station, as they have done all their lives, and suddenly going to discover that they're not going to be allowed to vote because, um, I mean, the Mirrors ran a campaign on this to try and encourage people to... Be A, be aware that they need to take voter ID with them because some people may have it at home, but they don't dig it out, take it to the polling station. Um, and then also um, there's the issue that other people just don't have it. They don't have a passport. You know, they may not go on holiday. They may not have a they may not have a driving license. And you had to register in advance to get the other ID. And I, there was not enough publicity about that. So. They reckon that about, I think, 80,000 people have applied for this photo ID, which is perhaps only 4% of all the people in the country that don't have the necessary IDs. There are millions of people who are not going to have the ID to vote in this election. Which is astonishing. But is it perhaps because it's the local elections and lots of people don't tend to vote in those anyway, so they're not worried about it this time? Maybe they'll be more worried about it in the general election? I think there might be some of that, but I also think that there hasn't been enough public information campaign around what is a really major change to our democracy and how people vote. Um, Because the reality is it tends to be people who are older or it tends to be people from ethnic minority communities or it tends to be people who may have a disability. So those people who are already kind of marginalised are those, the statistics show, are least likely to have ID. So it's those people who you know, you could cynically say are being, they're trying to discourage those people from voting. And I just think it's really sad. So this woman, she's 93. So her mother or grandmother, as a, as a young woman, wouldn't even have had the right to vote until she was in her, uh, you know, her late, because you remember, it wasn't, it was only 100 years ago that, yeah. that women had to be like nearly 30 before they were allowed to vote. It's not that long ago. And all the work that's been done over the last century to get more people the vote, it now feels this is being pushed into reverse and it's a very cynical attempt to do just that. 
Yeah, it's a bit frightening, isn't it? Now, what do you think, everybody? Are you planning to vote tomorrow? Have you got voter ID? Are you got it with your ballot card ready to take it down the polling station? Or are you going to be one of those people who goes down the polling station, gets, oh, bugger, has to go home and get it, and then forgets something else happens, the yeah. phone rings, and you never end up getting back to the polling station again? We I'm should wondering. be encouraging people to vote. We should be doing, as a society, we should be doing everything we possibly can to get people in, engaged in our democracy, rather than making it harder and harder for people that are, you know, working or have a disability or are elderly, just trying to put them off from the whole thing. Yeah, well, as Mike points out here, I know someone who's officiating tomorrow at a polling station. Women with face coverings will have to remove them to prove their ID. Now, that does happen at the border as well for passport control, but it's, you know, not happened ever before at a polling station. Many Muslim women simply won't vote. This is gerrymandering by social group. Uh, there's been lots of fears about this actually affecting, you know, the, the, the people who are likely to vote Tory and not vote and vote the other way. But <clears throat> as we're saying here, if it's older people, some of these people are going to be voting Tory as well. There are plenty of Muslim people who also vote Conservative. They're not. Yeah, all and actually, think, yeah, there's a lot of statistics that show it's harder for younger people. So when you look at the list of ID that is um, <laughs> acceptable, there's more sort of um, older people. Um, parties and uh, that, that will be acceptable whereas for younger people it's even harder so it's almost like they're being discouraged as well yeah now una here in this story says that the older generation being put off by these rules she says there's a lot of people like me who'll just give up on voting if they make it harder now she's trying to get postal vote for the next general election which you don't need photo id for it just has to come to your address and you confirm everything and they check it against the electoral register i've got that and it's much easier because I never know if I'm going to be in the same place mm. as my polling station on the day of a vote. I could be anywhere. So it's easy. You could do it before. It's perfectly secure. It's very good. And it, you can't. it's very difficult, actually, to kind of do that in a fraudulent way. Right. There's a lot of checks on it. But it's nowhere near as satisfying as going into the polling station in the mm. booth and, and pupping, making your mark and putting it in the ballot box. But, Alison, is this something you think that Labour would reverse or are they they're going to stick with this, aren't they, if they come to power? Well, um, I think there's sort of, well, as far as I'm aware, there is a certain sort of, I think they're on the fence with this one at the moment. And I haven't, I don't think there's any solid concrete plan to reverse well, they're this. They're sort of on the fence with everything, aren't they, at the moment? Well, they are. They are. But, um, but when, when, <laughs> when the idea to do this came in, it, there'd been, there had been some issues around um, voter fraud, but it was tiny. And there were, there are already... Uh, things in place to deal with it. This is an entirely disproportionate response to to the problem. And actually, rather than helping our democracy and making it healthier, it will have completely the opposite response. Yeah. It's a, it's a strange situation we find ourselves in, I think, that we're actually in the 21st century and there's... there's... <laughs> less ways to vote rather than more you'd think we'd have telephone voting by now they can do it for blooming out and deck i don't see why they can't and strictly come dancing because they can't figure it out for this now pj says according to the electoral commission page and accepted id you can still use your photo id if it's out of date so long as it looks like you are polling station staff aware of this no pj i bet you any money there'll be some staff who let people through and there'll be other polling station staff go, oh no yeah. you can't have that because they they're not clear yeah. about it and the electoral commission has said they are not going to count this. They are not going to count how many people are actually turned away from a polling station. So we will never know, Alison, will we? And, and you can just imagine there are going to be awful rows up and down the country because people have made the effort to get to a polling station. They won't have heard about the rule change because it hasn't been sufficiently properly advertised. 
and they're going to go mad that they're suddenly they're, they're, they'll feel that they're being denied their democratic right. I can guarantee it's going to be kicking off up and down the country tomorrow. Oh, yes. Well, we should, it is only the local elections. Um, so yeah. it'll be kicking off in a genteel way because mm. they're the generally genteel people vote in the local elections usually. Um, but it's got to be said, OK, um, the, there's always low turnout on local elections. But I say this every time. These are the most important things that will affect your daily life far more so than voting in a general election. These are the people who will decide how often your bins get emptied, um, what kind of funding there is for your schools, when houses get repaired, yeah, what, what, what the local plan is and where houses get built and how many get built. They decide um, the police forcing, police force size in your local area. They will decide the rates, the council tax, the street lights, the social care that keeps people safe in, in their own homes. So for goodness sake, vote tomorrow. It's incredibly important. And make sure if you go to the polling station, you take photo ID. Uh, and Doug says, my postal vote's already gone in and I didn't need ID. Same as me, Doug. I've voted already. Vote early, vote often. Uh, and if you can vote with a postal vote, it's so much easier. Get registered in time for the general election because it will be easier for you. Um, and don't let them steal your vote. Just don't let anyone take away the rights that people have fought a thousand years for. Goodness sake. Anyway. Yeah, and I, I do wonder sometimes if some people have just... Oh, all of us maybe have taken the granted because our generation and the generation above us have grown up with it there as an absolute right. And and it can be easy to forget how hard people have had to fight to get that right. And that, you know, it, it can get taken away as well. Exactly. It's not permanent. Just because you've been given the right, the minute it's there forever. You've got you to keep fighting for it. Yeah. Freedom isn't free, as I saw in a bumper sticker once in America. It's, it's not. Uh, right, we need to move on <clears throat> to the main story of the day. Uh, right, which is Princess Anne. Now, she has given an incredibly candid interview. I mean, she rarely speaks, and when she does, she's always candid. You know, she's pretty straight-talking woman. Uh, but this one's a zinger. Uh, we've got a clip for you here from some of, the, some of the stuff she said. Here it is. It's not a conversation that I would necessarily have. I think it's in, it, it perfectly true that it, it is a moment where you need to have that discussion. But I would just underline the, that the monarchy provides with the constitution a degree of long-term uh, stability that is actually quite hard to come by any other way. And she was talking there about the relevance of the monarchy uh, and why you, you do still need to have it. And to a Canadian broadcaster where the sort of the Republican sentiments are sort of growing a little bit, they're a little, feeling a bit more uncertain about it. And she also seems to think we've got a constitution, which is, I think is charming. Um, <laughs> no one's seen it yet, and do tell us where you've left it. Um, but, you know, she was talking about the king, COVID, sort of everything, really. And this big takeaway, Alison, is that she doesn't think the monarchy needs to be slimmed down, does she? She's saying it's the source of stability. We don't need to have fewer royals. We need what we've got. But that's the opposite of what all our surveys have shown, isn't it, for our readers? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, she, I mean she still says something funny like... Um, it doesn't sound like a good idea from where I'm standing. Now, I don't know if she's saying that because it means that she should get locked off the end or, or whether it's just a, a general view and she's trying to be slightly diplomatic in her, in her language because she knows that this is what her brother Charles and her nephew William are absolutely intent on doing in having the slimmed down monarchy. Um, so I suppose... Uh, some people will say, well, it's already in the process of being slimmed because uh, Andrew is kind of being sidelined and obviously Harry has taken the choice to go and, and, and step away and move abroad. Um, so 
but I think it's clearly at odds with the general public. Now, I don't know how much the general public have really thought about the detail of what a slimmed down uh, monarchy means, but certainly um, the Mirror did a poll, um, a nationwide poll that we printed at the weekend. We showed that 80% of the population are in favour of a slimmed down monarchy. And that was then followed in other titles in subsequent days that pretty much came up with a similar number. So it, it, it is clearly we as a nation don't want to keep spending our hard earned money taxes on a vast royal family. That is not how people see it heading in this country. And, and I think Charles and William are both very aware of that and very conscious that there'll be no truck with that and are and are responding accordingly. Mm. Well, Anne, of course, has sort of done her bit because she's only had two children. But the mm. rest of them have um, have been, rather than the late Queen and Prince Philip, have been rather fecund and then guaranteed we've got a bigger family, perhaps, than we actually really need to do the jobs. But is she, what do you think, everybody? Is, is Princess Anne being a royal rebel here? That's what she was as a teenager, what she was considered. Is she kicking off and going, mm, no, I don't think so? Like any employee, right? She doesn't want to be made redundant, let's face it, if any of us were asked the question. Or is she just pointing out, you know, quite pragmatically, that a lot of this talk came about when, you know, they, as we got a picture there on the spread, when the balcony was had so many royals on it, it was in danger of falling off the front of Buckingham Palace. And now that there are far fewer people on there because it sort of slimmed itself down, I suppose, by natural selection in a way. <clears throat> you can't and you can't get the king to open every new library or plant every tree, can you? He does have to delegate to people to do this. You do have to have deputy royals in a way, don't you? Well, I suppose that is interesting point really and it, it takes you to the, the heart of the issue what is the point of the royal family <laughs> are they there to plant trees and open libraries and cut ribbons or are they there um to be a sort of a figurehead for the nation and um something that we can all kind of vaguely rally around on some deep subconscious level and i guess that's so so that, anne always comes out with the most hard-working royal and she does a lot of tree planting and ribbon cutting and all the rest of it. But I wonder if maybe Charles and William are thinking about royalty in the, different, in, the, in the more bigger picture way. So they'll have a few of the really important projects to them, like William's got Earthshot um, and he's got the work he's done on mental health. And then Charles has got his work on the environment. So maybe it's, a, it's fewer things on a kind of higher level, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not so much of the ribbon cutting and that mm. business, day to day business, but some of the more big picture stuff. Mm. Maybe they're thinking further ahead. Who knows? But Anne, you know, she's talking a lot in here um, about what she thinks the royal family is good for. Now, what do you think, everybody? Um, what do you think the royal family is good for? What do you, What is their purpose? Do you think? Get into the comments and let us know. We've got another clip here of when Anne was asked how the family is dealing with the conversation about the royal relevance. We as a family see ourselves there as to support that role. What we do, we hope, contributes um, to the monarchy and the way in which it can convey continuity uh, of not just interest, but of service, of understanding, uh, the way that people and communities um, want to live their lives. Now, she was talking there, at highlighting all the wonderful work that people do, which the media, of course, us nasty people, don't always report on. But that's a rather rose-tinted view of a life, I would suggest, Alison, which is, let's face it, even the hardest-working ones like Anne, they do a three-day week. The work is, at its most arduous, chairing a meeting or it's shaking hands or asking people how far they've come. You know, there's going to be a lot of people on Saturday who will be watching 
Anne, in all her regalia, and her brother getting draped in stolen jewels and gold, saying, hang on, I can't afford to buy a coronation chicken sandwich. This is ridiculous extravagance on a family of people who we, we can manage without, surely. Yeah, I think that is definitely a conversation that is happening up and down the country in a way that a year ago, as we came close to the Jubilee, I don't feel was happening. I don't think that conversation was there. And I think perhaps in the last 10 to 15 years of the Queen's life, because she was an elderly lady that everybody felt very fondly about, a lot of these big questions about what is the purpose of the monarchy, why are we paying for this institution, is it really what, how we want to represent the modern Britain? Those questions just weren't there. They just weren't there because it was somehow felt to be disrespectful for this elderly lady who had given her whole life in service. And, you know, there's no doubt, you know, I think I wouldn't want to do Princess Anne's job. I wouldn't want to do the King's job. I couldn't think of anything worse than, you know, A, you're kind of in the public spotlight all the time, but also, you know, you can't just pop down to the shop and, and have a drink or, or... Yeah, and when you're given a pen, it generally works. <laughs> exactly. So, so I wouldn't want to do any of that stuff. And so, I, so I, I sort of have some sympathy with them on a personal level, and they've been propelled into these roles, and they've just got to get on with it. However, I do think it is an entirely legitimate question that people are now asking about, is this really the institution that we want in Britain today? And if it is, what form do we want it to take? How many people are on the payroll? How big is that payroll? What's the what's the deal? What do we get for what they get? And I think those questions just those questions just haven't happened for years. And and now is the time they're gonna happen. Yeah, I think we're gonna sudden get a lot of constitutional experts, a lot like we had a sudden lot of virologists a couple of years ago telling us the relevance of some of this stuff. And one of the things that's going to happen on Saturday and it's been published and a lot of people have gone what which is that people are going to be asked to pledge allegiance to the king Mm. right now um, a lot of people have gone I don't think so mate no you know we don't consent to this and we, we don't believe you're ordained by God and all the rest of it but it's worth pointing something out constitutionally okay in the past thousand years the general public in this country have never been asked to consent to a new monarch not once the only people who've ever had to sort of pledge allegiance at one of these ceremonies would have been peers the aristocrats members of the house of lords whoever whoever had the sword and was had the least blood on them at that moment in time okay the general public never got asked this is the first time in a thousand years people are being asked their opinion and we have a right to express it and it's also worth pointing out after the last couple of years of government that we've had in this country this is a public servant or someone who considers himself a public servant all right, a very expensive one, but he's a public servant who is making a promise to us. Part mm. of the coronation oath is about that quid pro quo. And that's, that's been going on a thousand years as well. So the first Saxon kings, Alfred, the Norman kings, the Plantagenets, all of them, they stood there in, in their chosen abbey of different places and they made an oath to their people to protect them and to do various things. And when those kings and queens went off piste in some way, the nobles and the and the politicians yeah. of the day dragged them back to the coronation oath and said, oi, and, you know, we're not having that. And so, actually, we've got someone who is going to be in front of the whole world promising to do something for us. Now, we might not approve of it. We might not like it all. We might say, I don't want a tree hugger who sniffs geraniums promising to do stuff for us. But have any prime minister ever no, really I- 
I agree. I agree. And I think the Queen made her oath to um, the late Queen made the, the oath to um, to do her duty for her entire life, and she absolutely stuck to that. And I think particularly during the last few years, during COVID, I don't really remember, it was on the um, anniversary of D-Day, I think, which was during the uh, the very worst of lockdown. And she did that amazing um, speech and, and she said at the end, you know, we will meet again. And actually, probably of all the public statements that came out during the whole of COVID, I found that the most uh, emotional and the most, because you, we trusted her and it really felt that there was a kind of a, a common bond there between, well, I suppose that because because it's a common bond between people that's got this kind of figurehead in the middle. Yeah. And it's this, and it, people talk about the United Kingdom, the thing that keeps us united, bizarrely, uh, you know, and I appreciate there's all sorts of difficulties with this over the years, but is, is the monarchy, is the thing that has kept us united. And I think, and like you say, we've been let down by our government, by but by so many institutions, we've been let down by big business and greed and the banks and the MPs and MPs' expenses and the police and it, you could go to almost every sector of society and see how we've been let down. And I'm not saying the monarchy's been blameless in all this, but the Queen was there as a kind of a solid force who believed in duty and believed in self-sacrifice. And if the new king can follow in that path, then th there are there are clearly benefits as well. So I think that's why the conversation needs to happen. Yeah, I think part of that maybe was the fact that you know during COVID it was our it was the nation's granny saying, "Don't worry, we'll get through it," and everyone was being separated from their grannies at the time. So that I don't know if King Charles has got the same kind of resonance for a lot of people. No, but then he's also granny. new in the job, isn't he? He's new to the job, so you know maybe yeah. in five years he would have. Who knows? But of course, it's, it's it's not just him that makes the oath. You know, police officers make the oath, judges make the oath. You make the oath when you swear in court, when you give evidence. Uh, they give they do an oath when they could join the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Giving an oath and actually it it is adhered to makes a difference. And if the person at the very top of the tree is doing it, then everyone else has to do it. All right, and that's why we've got a problem with the likes of Boris Johnson when they don't keep their promises, and that's why we hold them to account. So I like the fact there's a promise being made, even if some of yeah. the the regalia are a bit daft. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, one of the more heartrending bits of this interview is where Anne is discussing COVID and the effect that it had on her family. And she says that the lockdowns and the risk of infection robbed her father, Prince Philip, of visits from people who would have, you know, kept him engaged. And she said he sort of lost interest in things after that, she says. He implies he sort of just drifted away because he lost some interest in the world. And that picture of the Queen alone at his funeral, I mean, Anne says she never saw that at the time, and she agreed that it, it looked like thievery, like something had been stolen from her from her mum. And I thought what was most touching about those things that she said about her parents is that so many people across the country can resonate, that will resonate with them, in that they also went through situations where um, elderly relatives felt that they were being disconnected from the world and it sort of hastened their decline. And also... Um, that loneliness that there was there for so many people. And, and I think that was really poignant when she said that. And I think it enables us to understand that, you know, the royal family were really touched in exactly the same way as so many other families were. Exactly, yeah. Um, now, finally, before we move on to the good news, Anne's reflecting on her brother and what sort of king he's going to be. And funnily enough, she says, well, it's not going to change. 
he is going to be exactly as he's always been. But, Alison, Charles has spent decades being criticised as a meddler, as a hippie, tree hugger, who interferes with the running of the country. Um, are we going to, still going to get that from him, do you think? Or is, is it all going to be behind closed doors? I don't think we are. Because I, I think there was a real clear understanding that <clears throat> the job's different and that when you're the Prince of Wales, you've got to have some causes and some purposes. And to be fair to him, he was talking about climate change in 1969 when absolutely nobody else knew what he was on about. So he has really led the way in conversations around that. But I think he clearly understands that this is a different gig and that you can't have an opinion and that um, you have to keep it all very much um, under wraps. Um, and I think because then also it's now Prince William's job to do all the other stuff, to do the kind of the causes and, the, and building up uh, to the big job at some point in the future. So I think, I think he does understand the job has significantly changed. Mm. Well, I think probably from um, some of the stuff I've done, people I've spoken to about nuclear test veterans and the King's Medal, I think he's perhaps spent the last 70 years realising that you don't have to say it. You can just ask a question over here. Yes. And, happens yeah. and things just go the way you want to. I think yeah. he's learned where, um, where the influence is. But we shall have to see, won't we, in the long term of things, how things work out there. Right. Thank you for that, Alison. Now, what do you think, everybody? How are you going to be voting tomorrow? Um, have you got your photo ID? Are you ready to go? Or are you? Are you is your vote being taken away from you? How do you feel about the coronation? What are you going to be doing? You're going to be gardening. You're going to be working. You're going to be watching on a big screen. Do let us know. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll have a little wrap at the end. But in the meantime, there is some good news in the world. And here it is. Now, I don't know about you, Alison, but I have been gripped by Welcome to Wrexham on Disney Plus, where Hollywood stars uh, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, whose name I can now pronounce, yeah. uh, have documented their takeover of Wrexham AFC. Now, it's been an emotional roller coaster for them and for the town, but after two years, they have finally achieved what they set out to do on day one. Um, which was get the team promoted up a league. And that means there's more money comes in from the from the uh, FA. Other things become, the, the league they're in is the hardest one to get out of. And the one they're in now, they're finally, they've gone up. They finally achieved it, having spent 15 years uh, in the backwaters of football. Alison, is this proof that with amazing good looks and millions of dollars, absolutely anything is possible? Even <laughs> <laughs> I think it proves exactly that. Um, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, I loved uh, Welcome to Brexit as well. I think it was really brilliant. But what I really liked about it was um, that apparently one of the reasons they did it was because in America, I didn't realise this, in all the leagues, once you're in a league, you stay there forever. And what they really liked about um, English football is that you can actually, there is, there is the possibility that you could start out where Wrexham was and then actually one day with enough good fortune and money, you can make it to the very top of the Premier League. So, and that's a really interesting idea that I don't think they have in the States. Um, and apparently I was reading something yesterday about the number of tourists from America who are turning up in Wrexham at that pub <laughs> in the, that features. The, and so they're getting a, flying into London and then they're on the first train up to Wrexham um, and it's becoming this massive international tourist spot, which is brilliant. Yeah, and all because Ryan Reynolds is doing stuff on TikTok and the other guy's doing some stuff too with uh, with slightly fewer followers. But it it's fantastic, that show. If you haven't seen it, try and, try and have a look. And it's really wonderful the way that those two, for whatever reason, have decided they just want to take a club and 
and do something good with it and help the town. One of the best things I think was in the episode I was watching last night, they said people have asked us why Wrexham all the way through. And the answer was what happened today. And they were at a match where they had lost 3-0 and it was a critical game, I think. I can't remember what the contest was now, but it's a critical game. They lost 3-0 at an away match and every fan stayed on the stands and applauded their team as they went back in. They didn't want them to feel bad, which, and they said, that's why Wrexham which is lovely, isn't it? That's ever so sweet. Now, um, there are a few comments um, on Twitter. So says uh, Lynn says, Princess Anne is right, though. Most working royals are getting on in years now. So who did they lose? They lost two unexpectedly. There's no one else who's surplus to requirements. Uh, Querty wants, it trimmed, wants the royal family trimmed down to zero. Uh, there's one way of doing it. But, of course, if we got rid of them and they lost their jobs, we'd still have to have them somehow or another. They'd all be on Big Brother or Celebrity Love Island or something. Roy says, Anne doesn't want to slim down monarchy. She's a royal parasite. Why would she give up free public money for doing faux charity work and living in luxury? She's as bad as the rest. She is arguably, I would suggest, a lot better than the rest. And her charity work is actually pretty genuine and she does far more of it than the other royals. But we'll take the point that it's still not nine to five and they're not down the pit, are they? Any of them. So... We've obviously got a lot of uh, different opinions about the royal family and how things are going to work. But on Saturday, for the first time uh, in 70 years, the person at the top of the tree is going to make a promise to look after us. Whether you want that or not, whether you like that or not, I think the promise is kind of astonishing. That's what's going to happen. And of course, we might all be happy if it was Ryan Reynolds doing it, but we hasn't. We've got Charles. <laughs> That's the one we've got, I'm afraid. There's fewer wisecracks and uh, the teeth aren't as white. But otherwise... Uh, he's not too bad, probably. Right. Um, thank you, everyone, for taking us through that. Thank you, Alison, for explaining it to us. Uh, if you come back at about noon, everybody, you should see on these channels uh, Prime Minister's Question, where Rishi Sunak is going to be asked, goodness knows what, that's uh, going wrong today. Uh, and we will be back next, not next Monday, because it's a bank holiday, but this time next week, next Wednesday, um, for another edition of the News Agenda, when we'll wrap up all the post-coronation madness that um, you may have missed. All right. Thanks, everybody. Till then. Thanks, Bye. Thanks, Susie. Bye.